have in all swing states major infractions or outright fraud. If we are right about the fraud, Joe Biden can't be president. I've seen too much pieces of different evidence so far that shows that at this point, I would be okay with a revote. Now, as my buddy Steve Bannon says, if you're gonna lie, be believable about it. Because you do not have 138,000 votes come in and 135,000 of them come in for Biden. If there's one vote that is fraudulent, that's enough for me. This isn't a research project, I'm not looking for statistically significant stuff, I'm looking for one evidence of voter fraud. This is a 6,000-year-old death cult. Right. You can't take it down that quick. Trump did not lose the election. The election was stolen from us. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drake. This week marks six months since pro-Trump extremists attacked the U.S. Capitol, attempting to stop Congress from certifying the electoral votes in the 2020 election. It was an attempt to overturn a free and fair American election. But the people involved in the attack wrongly believed that it was not free or fair. And according to polling from Ipsos Reuters, months later, a majority of Republicans still believe the false conspiracy theory that the election was stolen. Today, we're going to dig into why people believe conspiracy theories and theories surrounding the election in particular. In this case, the through line doesn't seem so complicated. Why do Republicans believe that the election was stolen? Well, then President Trump, the leader of their party, along with influential figures on the right, told them that it was. That's all true, but social scientists have a lot more to say about who is liable to believe those theories, to what extent they might believe them, and then also why and how they take root. And then lastly, what can be done to counter their attractiveness? Here with me to talk about all of that is 538 politics and tech reporter Kaylee Rogers. Hello and welcome, Kaylee. Hi, thanks, Galen. So let's start with the basics. From where you sit, what role did conspiracy theories play in catalyzing the attack on the Capitol on January 6th? Oh, that was one of the biggest, if not the biggest factor. I mean, Trump obviously was a major player in this, both on the day, sort of amping everybody up, but also ahead of that, playing into the big lie, constantly repeating these claims about a fraudulent election that weren't based in reality. And so you had a, a huge cohort of people who genuinely believed that there was something wrong, that this election was not done in a fair and, and democratic way and wanted to air their grievances about that to protest that, as any American, I think, would if they genuinely believed that something like this had happened. And then you add into that all the mob mentality of the day, the actual event, Trump literally telling them to go to the Capitol, and then some instigators that were on the ground from militia groups and more far-right groups that kind of were pushing everything forward. It kind of seemed inevitable. You know, a lot of People who report on this, like myself, my colleagues in this area, we all were kind of waiting to see what would happen. I don't know that anyone predicted it would go quite that far, but that was sort of what I had my eyes on that day. I was certain that this crowd was going to get unruly and that something bad was going to happen, honestly. So according to the Ipsos Reuters polling that I mentioned at the top, 56% of Republicans said that the 2020 election outcome was the result of illegal voting or election rigging. And depending on how you ask that question, you can get slightly different results. It got up to 60% in this particular poll if you asked directly if people thought that the election was stolen. That's for Republicans. And 
That's similar to what it's been since the election. So say somewhere between 50 and 60% of Republicans believed this on January 6th. That's a lot of people. So why did some people take the leap from the general belief in this conspiracy theory to showing up to try to violently overturn an election? Right. I think part of that has to do with sort of depth of belief. So people might have thought something was wrong or, or maybe they just weren't happy with the outcome of the election. So they're like, yeah, it probably was stolen or something versus people who, who felt this belief quite deeply, were fully entrenched in it and possibly with other conspiracy theories that circle around it like QAnon. And that really motivated them to show up that day. And then, like I said, I really do think that it was accelerated on the day of. So people who probably hadn't planned to actually, you know, trespass and invade the Capitol and become an insurrectionist that day, got caught up in the moment and the the energy of the mob and everything that was happening around them to take those next steps. You've done reporting for 538 that looks at depth of belief, as you mentioned. Can you detail some of that? Like how much of the country really believes in the QAnon conspiracy theories? What percentage of the country really strongly believes that they know that this election was rigged? It's really hard to pull for QAnon, first of all, because it's such a big umbrella conspiracy. And so there are parts of it that a person might believe without believing the whole thing or other parts of it. Like I said, there's sort of that difference in depth. So somebody maybe watched a YouTube video or read a Facebook post and believes in that part of the conspiracy theory, but isn't spending all day on QAnon forums or, you know, baking breadcrumbs, as they call it, where they're looking at the Q posts and trying to decipher what they meant and relating them to current events. That's a, a big spectrum, right, between those kinds of people. So it's hard to capture that in an easy poll question. Pollsters have tried talking about beliefs specifically. They've tried just talking about Q straight up, like, do you believe in QAnon? Do you affiliate with it? And so we end up with a range of answers in that way. And then you also have people who might be just kind of taking the piss with pollsters, who think that that's kind of a funny thing to answer to. There are people who maybe don't fully believe it, but it kind of aligns with their general feelings. So there's a phenomenon called expressive responses where people answer something that they don't mean literally, but that kind of aligns with how they feel. And so there was a poll in 2016 where they asked voters if they would rather have a giant meteor hit the earth than either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton win. And a lot of people said that they would prefer the giant meteor. Obviously, nobody actually wants the earth to be destroyed by a giant meteor, but it kind of captured their, their feelings, right, about dissatisfaction with the candidates in the field. And so that's a phenomenon that can also be captured. So I think it's hard to pinpoint exactly my read based on the polling and just what I see that the fraction of people who are deep in this, like genuinely wholeheartedly believe it and spend all their time engaged with it is probably quite small. But I don't think that that means that they're not significant. And then that wider sort of fringe element where people believe in it to some extent is much larger and, and also concerning and problematic. You talked about expressive responses, and maybe that's part of some people saying that they believe QAnon conspiracy theories. We've talked on the podcast before about the percentage of Americans that believe this kind of stuff. A PRRI poll put it somewhere between 15 and 20%, but that was not actually mentioned in QAnon. When QAnon gets mentioned in polls, it's closer to like single digits, three to 5%, something like that. Do we see the same thing happening with the belief that the election was stolen amongst the broader Republican cohort in that people say that they think the election was stolen because that's their general partisan response and it's kind of expressive, but they may not seriously believe the actual conspiracy theories? I think there's definitely a bit of that happening, but the belief in the big lie and the election being stolen is much more widespread than QAnon. And I think 
genuinely held by a higher percentage of Republicans, especially. The degree to which they think fraud occurred or how they think it occurred, that varies. But there's a very strongly held belief that something about the 2020 election was not free and fair and needs to be investigated or looked at in some way. I mentioned that the through line is kind of clear here between Trump and other influential people on the right and this belief. People were just saying straight up that this election was rigged. Trump was saying straight up that this election was rigged. I'm curious, though, how do broader conspiracy theories start? And did this take kind of the normal course when we look at other conspiracy theories? There's a few things that are often common among conspiracy theories that people choose to follow. Often there's sort of like a nugget of truth or bits of truth kind of spiked within it, and those can be conduits for people. So I know a lot of people with QAnon were kind of drawn into it because of the Jeffrey Epstein case, which is a real thing that happened. You know, he was really charged and people were reading about that and then sort of came across other claims of, of similar accusations against other big names and, and fell into the wider worldview of QAnon. But their entry point was a piece of truth and real news that was being reported. And another thing that's often common is it does sort of align with how you're already feeling or thinking. So you, you maybe already have a distrust of the government or maybe you're unhappy with how the election turned out. You wanted Trump to win and he didn't. And so this framing of it, this kind of idea that maybe there was something fishy going on is really enticing. You know, oh, may maybe the guy I wanted to win really did win and something else happened that was wrong. Let me look into this more and see if that makes any sense to me. Similarly with birtherism, you know, a lot of people were unhappy about Barack Obama being president. And by trying to discredit him by saying he wasn't really born in America, that's a convenient lie to cling on to. Like, okay, well, he's not really president because of this thing that I've decided to believe based on no evidence and in fact, contrary evidence. Digging a little bit deeper here, you recently wrote a piece for the 538 website that looks at why people fall for conspiracy theories. And you mentioned that parts of the theories might be enticing or back up, you know, some pre-existing beliefs or desires, like in this case, that Donald Trump would have actually won the election. But it kind of goes deeper than that, right? Because not all Republicans believe the conspiracy theories surrounding the election. It's between 50 and 60%. So there's plenty of Republicans who don't believe that. And then also, if you look at independents in this Ipsos Reuters poll, it was only 16% of independents who believed that. So lots of people there who also aren't necessarily primed by partisanship don't believe this. Are there certain things that are unique to people that are prone to conspiratorial thinking? There are. I, I think I would take a step back first to look at with this conspiracy and with most conspiracy theories, People also aren't just necessarily taking Trump's word for it. He is a very powerful influence, no doubt. But for a lot of these people, they've looked at what they believe to be evidence. Okay, so there are things that they've seen dozens in cases, sometimes hundreds of pieces of quote unquote evidence that have been debunked, that all have actual like real explanations behind them. But if you only see the, the sort of original evidence, it can seem really crazy and it can be very persuasive. I'll give you an example. There was a number of cases in Michigan. So they'll do this thing where if somebody comes in that is registered, but their birth date isn't listed, they will put in like a temporary placeholder that's just 010101, which is January 1st, 1901. So what you end up with is a lot of voters who are allegedly you know, born in 1901, which obviously they aren't. And this got misconstrued in many, you know, it was 
reported on websites, there were people tweeting about it, there were affidavits from poll watchers who were there who were seeing these birth dates pop up on screens and were confused about it. And it was weird to them. And they thought, these are fake people, or these are fake dates, or these are dead people voting. And it kind of sounds like that if you don't understand the process behind it and how that all works, and that it's just a placeholder, and then they go and fix it later. If you don't have that second half of the information, it seems weird, right? And so if you get hundreds of pieces of information like that, it's really persuasive. And then the only thing that's countering it is mainstream media who are going through and fact-checking this and debunking it, and you don't trust mainstream media, then you end up feeling very persuaded by more than just Trump's point of view. You feel like you've seen evidence that proves this conspiracy theory. On top of that, this piece I wrote for 538 looked at some of the cognitive traits that if you have higher or more of these specific traits, you might be a little more prone to believing conspiracy theories. And they have done studies to find the correlation between these traits. But they're traits that all of us sometimes have or have in varying degrees. And they're just kind of these cognitive quirks, these like shortcuts that our brain uses to make sense of the world and to help us form opinions and ideas. And so things like seeing patterns where there are no patterns. I mean, human brains make patterns all the time. It's why we see faces in, in appliances and the fronts of cars, and it's how we're able to make sense of the world. And so seeing patterns isn't necessarily a bad thing, but if you take it to the extreme, then you end up with like the cork board with all the red yarn connecting all the crazy ideas because in your mind, there's a pattern there. And so, yeah, there are certain traits that might make people more prone to believing conspiracy theories. And there is correlations there, but it's not the only aspect of whether or not you're going to fall for something. Yeah, you wrote about several of these traits, and it was really interesting reading through. I encourage listeners to go check it out on the 538 website. And there are some actual tests for readers, listeners to see like how prone they are to this kind of conspiratorial thinking. But of course, we have two competing things here, right? There are environmental factors where you have the leader of the Republican Party, President Trump, some parts of right-wing media, encouraging people to believe something. And then you also may have personality traits and things like that. When you try to weigh environmental factors versus personal traits, where is the weight of the evidence? Like, which is more important for building these conspiracy theories and having them spread? I think environment's definitely more important because, you know, if you imagine somebody who's super primed to believe in conspiracy theories, but they live alone in a shack in the woods, like, they're not going to believe any of this stuff because they don't come across it. They might come up with their own ideas about something, but they're not going to be engaged with this kind of mainstream narrative that's coming out of Donald Trump and right-wing news and on social media. So that environmental influence is really important. And by the same right, if you are pretty analytical and you're not prone to conspiratorial thinking, but you're just getting hit with a barrage of what seems like evidence and arguments and people telling you like this happened, it's going to be a lot harder for you to resist no matter what your sort of natural traits are. So I think that environment plays a really important role. And we should also keep in mind the social media networks, the way that they make money, the way they operate is by keeping people engaged. And we know, you know, we've had people that worked at Facebook and Instagram and Twitter say that people are more engaged when things are controversial. So certain kinds of content is going to be promoted by the algorithm to keep people more engaged. And so it's just this whirlpool of disinformation. And you add into that really powerful, persuasive people like President Trump, major figures on the right making the same claims, One American News Network, all these things. It's very hard to resist, I think, believing at least to some degree these claims that are being made. Talking about environmental factors and the different ideas that are out there in the world that people might believe, what's the relationship between 
conspiracy theories and white supremacy. We saw white supremacists on display on January 6th at the Capitol, flags, clothing, etc. Is there overlap there that has a history? Yeah, absolutely. The white supremacist movement in the United States and the blatant, actively white supremacist individuals and groups and neo-Nazis, a lot of the times the way they talk about this really seems like the conspiracy theories that are becoming more popular is a useful tool for them and kind of a means to an end of getting people riled up and fearful and preparing for what they see is like an impending race war that's genuinely their worldview. And they often don't believe or they'll make fun of or, or disengage with things like QAnon or they, they don't even like Trump necessarily that much. But these conspiracy theories often fit neatly into their broader agenda of trying to get white people to feel frightened about changes, about feeling like things are not the America that they are used to. And, you know, the white supremacists have a neat answer for why that is. And so it's a very useful tool for them to, you know, monitor some of these groups, the more surface level ones available on Telegram and stuff. And they discuss this kind of thing. And they talk about trying to lure in people who are already thinking conspiratorially because it really makes it easy then to sell them their worldview on top of it. I want to talk a little bit more about the spread of these conspiracy theories and maybe what can even be done to stop them. But first. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. There are all kinds of conspiracy theories. Some of them are pretty innocuous, like whether or not I believe that the United States landed on the moon might not necessarily have that big of an influence on whether or not I peacefully participate in American democracy. When they are not innocuous, when these conspiracy theories can lead to violence and disruption. How do you stop them? I don't know that we have a good answer yet about how we stop this. One of the biggest barriers I see is this erosion of trust in institutions, especially the news media and, and journalism. Like I said, with The Big Lie, for example, a lot of these like pieces of evidence have been debunked and, and checked by journalists that pick up the phone and call the people in charge and figure out what's actually going on. If you don't trust journalists or you don't trust the people in charge that they're calling, that whole structure of holding up the truth and keeping us grounded in reality falls apart. And so without that, it's really scary because anything goes and, and you're just going to believe whatever lie fits your narrative. So one thing I've been toying with a lot is our role as journalists and what we can do to try to help as far as building that trust back up again. I think a lot about how we could be more transparent with our process and what it is we do, because for so long we enjoyed this level of trust that we didn't have to show our work always, you know? It was like people just trusted us. We would go do our job, report it out, write it, and people believe what was on the page. And, and now people are, are not trusting us. And I think it's helpful if we show how the sausage is made a little bit and explain that when I'm choosing a poll, I don't just 
pick a poll out of thin air and I don't use one data point from one poll to try and hang a story off of. And when I talk to experts, you know, I talk to more than one expert, like I compare what they have to say. And I talk to people that I don't even quote in the story, but that inform my reporting. There's all this stuff that goes on that people aren't aware of that I think is helpful to sort of lift the curtain a little bit and maybe build up some of that trust. And there's a role to play among social media as well. There's changes that I think could and should be made to make disinformation less prominent and less appealing on these networks. I don't know that they will have much motivation to do that without some kind of government oversight, but then you get into questions of free speech and and what the government can and can't and should and should not do. So there's not an easy answer. And I also think actually having more clear response from trusted elected officials. If Trump came out and said, I was wrong, there was no tomfoolery, the election is free and fair, and Biden is your president, that wouldn't convince everybody, but that would go very far. So unfortunately, in an environment where we can't necessarily rely on elected officials to do what you just said, do things like deplatforming work? As folks may be aware, former President Trump filed suit this week against social media companies that barred him from their platforms because of largely January 6th. Does kicking someone who's instigating conspiracy theories off of a platform work? Yes. Yeah, it definitely works. I mean, there's studies that show that deplatforming at large works, and you can just see that Trump's influence diminished somewhat as soon as he was no longer on these platforms and that the spread, the reach of his message diminished, even though, you know, he's still putting up press releases. He's now doing these rallies and doing his little comeback tour or whatever you want to call it. He's still getting a message out there. It's much more diminished by not having these mainstream platforms. And it's not reaching people that aren't already in the thick of it in a Telegram group that is very interested in what he has to say and is going to share every single message. If you're sort of more of a regular right-wing American that just uses Facebook and got your information from his Twitter feed, that's much more reduced now. And so that influence is reduced. I think that that's definitely made a difference. As I mentioned, the percentage of Republicans who believe that the election was stolen is about the same in the most recent polling that we have as it was shortly after the election. So it seems like for now, this conspiracy theory has lasted these six months. How durable do you think it is? And how durable have other conspiracy theories been? I did do a story on this looking at the big lie compared to birtherism. And if birtherism tells us anything, like this is not going anywhere because it was an incredibly durable belief that every time like a new piece of information came out, like Obama releasing his long form birth certificate, belief that he wasn't born in America would dip a little bit, but then it would just come back. It would bounce back every time. Even when Donald Trump was like, okay, I was wrong, fine, he's American. It dipped a little and then it bounced back again. And that's with something that has a very clear single piece of evidence that disproves it. There's no birth certificate that proves the election wasn't stolen. There's several thousands of tiny pieces of information that have been debunked that somebody would have to ingest all of those to then be convinced. And they'd have to also believe that journalists are working in good faith and that election officials are working in good faith. I can't imagine this going away. You know, there'll be some erosion of it, I think, There's a lot of faith being put in the ballot review that was done in Maricopa County in Arizona, and they're awaiting those results. I think they're going to be disappointed when they find out that the results are not Trump won. And whatever it is that they decide to announce out of that, it's not going to change anything. 
And so there'll be some people that stick their head up at that point and come away from it, but there'll be other people that just double down. So I would be surprised if this significantly declines in any meaningful way over the next couple of years. What about legal repercussions for the insurrectionists on January 6th? Of course, law enforcement has been pursuing people who took part in the attack on the Capitol. Does that act as a kind of deterrent? That could act as a deterrent for actions, especially for people who maybe aren't so deep in their conspiracy beliefs. So maybe they just think something a little fishy went on, or maybe it wasn't totally legit, but Biden still won. Those kind of people, I think, would be more swayed by the prosecution of the insurrectionists than the really deep in the weeds folks who have just decided that it was a false flag, that the majority of people there were left-wing or undercover feds that were encouraging the attack to take place, and that anyone that they can't try and claim isn't really right-wing, that is very clearly right-wing, well, they just got caught up in it and it's not really their fault. But most people were Antifa or undercover FBI officers, and that's what they convinced themselves of. And again, they're collecting you know pieces of evidence of this. There was one person who was quite heavily involved in leading, you know, broke one of the windows and has a very clear online history of being involved with some of these right-wing conspiracy groups. Somebody did some digging and uncovered that he's a registered Democrat. And I like went to check it because it just seemed like a weird piece of information. And it's true, he's registered as a Democrat. And so to them, that's all the evidence they need. Clearly, he was working for the other side to just try and and make the right-wing people look bad. And this was just a really, really, really long con over many years. But this is what they do, right? They collect these weird little bits of info, some of them true, some of them not. They tie them together and they create this worldview. And it's going to be really hard to shake that. And and the fact that this guy is now getting charged, they couldn't care less. You mentioned that part of tamping down on this stuff could be elites within the party saying that the election was not stolen, in particular Donald Trump. Mitch McConnell does not have that kind of sway over the Republican Party, but he said that the election wasn't stolen pretty clearly on the floor of the Senate. He still didn't support investigating the attack on the Capitol, along with most other Republicans in the House and Senate. Why not? The Republican congressional strategy seems to be, let's get as much distance from this as possible, which I don't blame them. Like, why would you want to dwell on this horrible moment that makes your party and your former president look really bad? It's not super convincing. You know, at the state level, there's a lot more of an embrace of this conspiracy about the election being stolen. Trump has had not great things to say about Mitch McConnell. It's really easy for people to turn their backs, especially on D.C. Republicans. They call them rhinos. They say that they're part of the problem and they just kind of write them off. So I don't know that that has a lot of sway. What you need is a Trump to come out and reverse course to really have that kind of influence. You mentioned that Things have heated up, in fact, on the state level. What do you see as the role of conspiracy theories in our politics going forward? There's a rich history of conspiracy theories in politics in America that's always been there to varying degrees. We're at a really interesting moment where it's all kind of come together and come to a head and and kind of fits into the direction that we're seeing the Republican Party turn to more broadly of a more populist shift, culture wars, that kind of thing. Conspiracy theories fit neatly within that. They don't fit neatly in a policy-based approach to politics. So 
I feel like it's just only going to get worse, especially at local and state levels where you you can kind of push the bar a little more. I feel like people get away with a little more and it works in activating the base in those areas. If you compare it to, say, the satanic panic in the 80s and 90s, where a lot of the American public was convinced that local daycare centers were Satanists that were abusing children in these rituals to honor Satan. A lot of people believe that. It was reported in the media. The media was a part of the problem then. There wasn't really a political aspect to it, though. And it eventually kind of faded away and evolved a bit. And it has some of the roots of QAnon within it. But now there is a really like political aspect where it's no longer, you know, your local daycare worker that's a Satanist. It's Hillary Clinton that's a Satanist. It's the Democrats. It's the Washington elite. It's Hollywood. And all of this kind of comes together to make it more politically motivated than previous conspiracy theories maybe were. It's all coming together in a powerful way, and I don't see that shifting anytime soon. I think it's only going to play a bigger role in our politics in in the next few years. Looking at the role that conspiracy theories play in American society writ large, is it still a right-left thing? In the past, we've talked about conspiracy theories on this podcast, and our guest who was an academic who studied conspiracy theories basically said, there's no right-left divide. Republicans and Democrats believe conspiracy theories at equal rates. And we got messages back saying, no, that's not true. I'm curious for your take on this. Is there a right-left divide on conspiracy theories? As much as conspiracies have always played a role in American political life, we've never had a president that just straight up lied as much as Trump did and really spread a lot of conspiratorial thinking and dabbled in it and entertained a lot of theories in the way that he liked to do, that's unique. And that's been a major influence in the kinds of conspiracies that people are believing and how much they believe it and who believes it. Whoever you spoke to before was correct in saying that there isn't people on the left believing conspiracy theories as much as people on the right. There are different conspiracy theories. The anti-vax movement, for example, a lot of that is from people that lean more left in their politics. And a lot of them kind of went down a tube into QAnon from the left. So it's not strictly a right-wing phenomenon to believe in conspiracy theories. Where I think that there is the distinction is in this distrust of journalism, which is, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm biased, but I think one of the pillars protecting us against falling into just madness and believing every conspiracy that comes our way is having journalists fact-check it and uncover the truth. And this is part of the reason I wanted to do that piece about cognitive traits. I think it's really easy to point the finger at people who believe a conspiracy theory that you don't believe and say they're crazy or they're stupid or any other pejorative term you want. But the way we form our opinions and our beliefs is not that analytical, it's not purely analytical. You know, one of my sources for that story was like, we're not a bunch of Spocks walking around, like analyzing all the data and coming to a perfect conclusion. Like we all kind of form opinions. And then maybe we look for a little bit of evidence that supports the opinion we already formed and we find someone like that's good enough. And we kind of call it a day. It's rare for any of us to spend a great deal of time investigating every single piece of information that forms our worldview. And so I think coming to this with a little bit of compassion is helpful, especially if there's people in your life that believe in conspiracy theories and believing in things that you maybe think are dangerous or concerning, coming to it with a bit of compassion and a bit of understanding can go a long way to maybe helping them come to back to reality a little bit. That's, I think, some good advice. In fact, I think the person who gave you that Spock quote is also the person that we talked to on this podcast before about the prevalence of conspiracy theories and why people might believe them. That's professor from University of Miami, Joe Brzezinski. But let's leave things there. Thanks so much, Kaylee. 
Thanks, Galen. Kaylee Rogers is a politics and tech reporter here at 538. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidigari Curtis is on audio editing and in the control room, along with our intern, Emma Riley. Benton Stevens is on video editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.